Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, presented by Canon Press. This week we have the opening chapters of Jim Wilson's Principles of War, a handbook on strategic evangelism. Full audiobook available now in the Canon app. Forward. In the study of warfare, great men have concluded that there are some overriding principles that, if followed, will always tend toward success in battle, and if neglected or ignored, will tend toward defeat or even destruction. These principles have been entitled the Principles of War. All except the most naive know that the Christian is engaged in warfare. All except the most foolish know that in war it is imperative that those involved apply the principles of war. Just as these time-tried principles are effective in waging secular warfare, the author presents in quick succession these same principles as the key to assured victory in our spiritual warfare. In the true military style of being brief, perspicuous, and succinct, the author, with power, plunges the reader point-blank into the fight, a very present institution. The enemy is Satan. The objective is the acknowledgement and fulfillment of the commandments of God. And the ammunition is the power of the Holy Spirit. The Christian, clothed in the whole armor of God and applying these pertinent guiding principles of warfare, is an army, a communication system, a weapon to be used, and a soldier to participate forcibly in the battle to the glory of our Lord. Granville A. Sharp, Colonel. United States Army, 1964. Preface In the decades since this little book first appeared, many changes have taken place in the sophistication of weaponry for physical war. We now have smart bombs and guided missiles that are very accurate. If a cruise missile were fired from Boston, it could be guided through the goalposts at JFK Stadium in Washington, D.C. The principles of war have not changed. Superior weapons have always had an effect on the outcome of a battle or war. However, superior weapons have not guaranteed the outcome, the morale of combatants, the reason for fighting, and most of all, the implementation of the principles of war are the main guarantees of victory. The United States lost the war in Vietnam because of the practical disregard of these principles. We had no clear political or military objective. We had clear superiority in weapons, training, and men, but morale was low, and the men did not know why they were fighting. If they did know, the people at home did not know. The Viet Cong, in contrast, knew where they were going and observed the principles of war. I will mention other examples of violated principles in the appropriate chapters. In the war to liberate Kuwait from Iraq, we had clear superiority in weapons, training, and morale. In addition, we observed the principles. Ultimate and limited objectives were clearly stated. Even with multinational forces and with different services in the same theater of war, there was clear unity of command and clear cooperation between units. The blockade of Iraq, the interdiction of the lines of communication, and the encirclement of Iraq's Republican Guard showed clear understanding of the principle of lines of communication. We as Christians may not have learned as much in the last 20 years as the military has learned. Even so, there are some positive signs in the prosecution of the war in world evangelism. The most positive sign is the aggressive translation, retranslation, publication, and distribution of the scriptures in modern languages. 
The next most positive sign is prayer meetings for revival. Both of these are using the principle of the offensive. Other good signs are changes in mission organizations so that the doctrine of operation is not fixed. More versatility and flexibility is allowed. However, there are a few things that we are still doing wrong. We are still using the challenge volunteer mode of recruiting instead of teaching obedience. We are still teaching loyalty to organizations and methods that hinder obedience to God and cooperation with other units. We have many individual Christians and married couples in Christian work who are emotionally and or morally fouled up. If these people are in leadership, this affects the morale of everyone and results in a consequent non-aggressiveness in evangelism. Our hospitals for casualties are staffed by casualties and by sympathetic but misguided people who accept the casualties as permanent casualties. People are not being healed so they may get back into battle. They either become permanent invalids or the cure is planned to take the rest of their natural lives. It would be too easy for this preface to turn into a book in itself. I will end here so you can read the book. Jim Wilson, 1991. Chapter 1. Objective. In war, then, let your great objective be victory, not lengthy campaigns. Sun Tzu, The Art of War, 500 BC. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 57, NIV. When war is declared by Congress, their objective is victory. They pass this assignment over to the commander-in-chief. The commander-in-chief, with the Joint Chiefs of Staff, makes an estimate of the situation, comes to a decision, and develops a plan. To oversimplify it, the decision might be to invade and occupy specific nations in Europe and Asia. The plan would be to assign Asia to Commander-in-Chief Pacific and Europe to Commander-in-Chief Atlantic. These subordinate commanders must then make an estimate of the situation, come to a decision, and develop a plan. They, in turn, assign objectives to subordinate commanders. Commander-in-Chief Pacific orders the commander of the 7th Fleet to land certain armies and marine divisions in the assigned country in Asia. This process of estimating the situation, making a decision, and assigning objectives to subordinate commanders continues right down to the company, platoon, and squad levels. Every man in the chain of command has his objective assigned to him by higher authority. Now, suppose an individual infantryman has as his objective the top of a sand dune on a beach in Asia. He is pinned down by enemy fire, and he cannot make a move. While he is in this position, he suddenly sees a paper floating across the beach. So far, this is a very realistic situation, but suppose we make it unreal, even ludicrous. The paper happens to be a page from the Joint Chiefs of Staff Operation Order. As the page lands in front of him, he reads the assigned objective to the Commander-in-Chief Pacific invade and occupy on the continent of Asia. This is too much for him. He cannot even get off the beach, and they are telling him to occupy the whole nation. To him, it is unrealistic. Since he cannot understand how the whole can be taken, he might even lose the will to get to the top of the sand dune. Enough of the illustration. Jesus Christ is our commander-in-chief, and he has assigned the overall objective and put it in the grasp of every one of his followers in the directive of the Great Commission. All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, 
Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 19. To any individual Christian who thinks he is fighting the war all by himself, this objective seems not only unrealistic, but also impossible. Like the soldier on the beach, it is easy to adopt a what's-the-use attitude. The problem is the same in both cases. The man at the bottom of the chain gets a view of the objective of the person at the top. He is looking up the chain of command without the benefit of intermediate objectives. He sees only the objective of the top and the resources of the bottom. So it is for the Christian. He may see with his commander-in-chief the complete objective assigned to the whole church. He may also see the smaller parts of the church, groups of believers raised to reach a special segment of the world's population. God has raised up specialists with limited objectives in his church. Rather than lament the multiplicity of Christian organizations, we should rejoice that an intensive effort to meet our objective is being made. Of course, there is a danger that such groups will be filled with too great a sense of importance. If, however, they seek to occupy their own limited objective with all faithfulness, then the warfare of the church is advanced. These many organizations may be in existence not because of doctrinal differences, but because God has given them different objectives under the Great Commission. The first objective is one of sowing the seed. The second is reaping the harvest when the seed falls on good ground. If we sow the seed in every heart but do not reap where the seed prepares a harvest, then we have not reached our objective. We have, in effect, added to the condemnation of men with the gospel. We have been a savor of death unto death, rather than life unto life. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16. If, on the other hand, we reap where we have sown, but we do not sow in every heart as our assigned mission fields, then we still have not reached our objective. This is serious. This objective is not a mere psychological goal that makes us feel good when we get there. This is a mission assigned by our commander-in-chief. Not to get there is failure to carry out the assigned mission. It is defeat. Even if people do not or will not respond to the message of good news, this has no bearing on the objective to communicate the message to them. God assigns the objective. The people do not choose their own. Sun Tzu said, In war then let your great objective be victory, not lengthy campaigns. This truth was violated partially in Korea, completely in Vietnam, and not at all in the Gulf War in Kuwait. In the Korean and Vietnam Wars, we rotated men and units in and out of the theater of operations. That meant everyone got ribbons and medals. It also meant lengthy campaigns, more casualties, and no victory. In Vietnam, our objective deteriorated to counting the bodies of the enemy killed. As I write this, many Christian missions have set certain measurable objectives to be accomplished within the next 10 years. However, there are three problems with this kind of thinking. One, the objectives are too small. Two, they are too far away. And three, they should not be measurable. In the spiritual war, God keeps the records. In other words, we are planning for lengthy campaigns, not victorious campaigns. Ten years from now is too far away. In World War II, the Allies defeated the two most powerful, industrialized, militaristic nations of the world, which already had a head start when the United States entered the war. They were already off and running, while we had to start from nothing with our Pacific fleet sunk. We defeated them in three and a half years. They were at the extreme end of our supply lines. Men who had fought for two years in Africa and Europe 
boarded ships in France and headed directly for the invasion of Japan. In other words, we had an objective of victory, not lengthy campaign. The church has been counting on the victory prophesied in the second coming rather than seeking the victory commanded and mandated in Matthew chapter 28 verses 18 through 20 before the end of the age. This is a cop-out from present responsibility. Unless we know where we are going, it is of little importance how we go about getting there. The objective is primary. Questions Study personally or in a group Matthew chapter 28 verses 16 through 20 and Colossians chapter 1 verse 24 through 29. 2. Who assigns our objectives? 3. How can I know what has been assigned to me? 4. What are the objectives assigned to us as a local body of believers? 5. What are the objectives assigned to my family? 6. What are the objectives assigned to me? 7. Is there a time limit given in accomplishing the objective? Chapter 2. Offensive. They want war too methodical, too measured. I would make it brisk, bold, impetuous, perhaps sometimes even audacious. Antoine-Henri Jomini, Summary of the Art of War This is what is written, The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. The Lord Jesus Christ, Luke chapter 24, verses 46 through 47, NIV. In warfare, the offensive is the means by which one takes the objective. It is an aggressive advance against an enemy to wrest the objective from his possession. An army on the offensive has a moral and physical advantage over the enemy at the point of contact. The offensive is an attitude as well as an action. The attacking general has the advantage of making his decisions first and then carrying them out. The defender must first wait to see what his opponent does before he makes his decision. The decision he makes is usually forced upon him by the attacker. The aggressor has the advantage of the initiative. He can choose whether to attack and when and where to attack. The defender must wait for him. The aggressor is in the superior position. There are two general ways in which the offensive can be directed. One, it may be directed against the whole front to take it simultaneously. This is not ordinarily feasible in that it requires much more logistic support, weapons, food, and ammunition, much more fighting, and will sustain many more casualties. 2. The offensive may be directed against one segment of the enemy army, the defeat of which will mean a decisive victory. Decisive means that this defeat of the enemy may cause the rest of the army to capitulate, or it may mean a breakthrough has been made so that the rest of the army remains in a very weak position. One of the major problems of the direct attack against an enemy is that he wants to shoot back. An attacking force can sustain many more casualties than a defending force, e.g. the Somme in World War I. This is also true in evangelism. The enemy does not like to be preached to, so he shoots back. Christians do not like to be shot at, so they have opted not to preach. That is one solution, but not the right one. In the Gulf War over Kuwait, there were six weeks of air bombardment and 100 hours of ground attack. The coalition forces suffered very few casualties. 
I would like to compare the six weeks of air bombardment to concentrated prayer. I can touch the enemy, but he cannot touch me. This concentrated prayer softens up the objective so that when I go in to preach, I do not get shot at. Whether the offensive is directed against the whole front or against one segment of the enemy army, in either case it should be well understood that there is in every battlefield a decisive point, the possession of which, more than any other, helps to secure the victory by enabling its holder to make proper applications of the principles of war. Arrangements should therefore be made for striking the decisive blow upon this point. There are two things that determine a decisive point. The first is the relative importance of that point compared to the rest of the front. The second is the feasibility of taking that point. If it is not important, it is not decisive. If it is important but not feasible to take, then it is not decisive. This is very important. Be alert for teaching on the decisive point in succeeding chapters. Whether the offense is made along the whole front or at a decisive point, it has several basic characteristics. In attitude, it is bold. In direction, it is forward toward the enemy at the objective. And as its means, it uses effective weapons. The offensive in the spiritual war is conducted in the same manner. It is directed against the enemy, not against the objective. Satan is the enemy. We fight in order to wrest from his possession those who through fear of death are subject to his bondage. Hebrews chapter 2 verses 14 through 15. Most of this spiritual war is already history. Jesus Christ delivered the decisive blow at the decisive point at the decisive time. The blow was his death for sin and sinners. The point was a cross outside the city of Jerusalem, and the time was the feast of the Passover about A.D. 30. The Bible tells us that this blow destroyed the enemy and set the prisoners free. When Jesus died on the cross, he died with a loud voice, It is finished. What was finished? The defeat and ultimate destruction of Satan. This was the emancipation proclamation that sets us free from Satan. If the Son, therefore, shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. John chapter 8, verse 36. What remains if the decisive blow has been struck? We must occupy the land. We must proclaim the emancipation to Satan's captives. We must declare the means of freedom, the gospel, the defeat of Satan, and the victory of Christ in his death and resurrection. We participate in that ancient victory, for its proclamation is still unfinished. It is still news that many captives have not heard. The offensive in the spiritual war is to be carried out by two very basic means, preaching and prayer. Preaching, when done in the power of the Holy Spirit, is an engagement on the spiritual plane. Other powers are in conflict besides the speaker and the listeners. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, we can see four participants in the conflict, the Lord's servant, the opponent, God, and the devil have nothing to do with stupid, senseless controversies. You know that they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kindly to every one, an apt teacher, forbearing, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant that they will repent and come to know the truth, and they may escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 23-26, through 26, RSV. When the Christian teaches in the power of the Holy Spirit, he does it without quarreling. The strife is on the spiritual plane. 
he teaches with gentleness. The offensive in preaching is commanded in many places in the New Testament. One of the more dynamic expressions is the word of the angel who opened the prison doors in Acts chapter 5, verse 20, and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. RSV. Praying in the Holy Spirit is also commanded in the New Testament. Two of these examples are, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all men, all kings, and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life, godly and respectful in every way. This is good, and it is acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony to which was born at the proper time. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1-5 through 5, RSV Pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that utterance may be given me in opening my mouth boldly, to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly, as I ought to speak. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 18-20, through 20, RSV. Notice this. The first text says, first of all, and the last is the concluding thought of the paragraph that starts, finally. Verse 10. First and finally. That is the order of prayer. Then notice that both of these paragraphs on prayer have to do with evangelism. When we pray in the Spirit, we and others will preach in the Spirit boldly. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20, is very clear teaching on spiritual warfare, and prayer is the final part of it. What Paul teaches in these three verses, he practices in the earlier chapters where his own prayers are recorded. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 16 through 21, and chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. These prayers are for Christians. His prayer requests are also for Christians. We have few passages in the New Testament on prayer for unbelievers. Four that I have found are Jesus' prayer on the cross, Luke chapter 23, verse 34, Stephen's dying prayer, Acts chapter 7, verse 60, Paul's prayer for his countrymen, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved, Romans chapter 10, verse 1, RSV, and the first Timothy passage quoted earlier. All of these are evangelistic prayers. The prayers and prayer requests for Christians are more numerous, and they also have to do with the proclamation of the gospel, as in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 20, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak, RSV. In Matthew 9, when Jesus saw the multitudes and had compassion on them, he commanded, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray therefore the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Matthew chapter 9, verses 37 through 38, RSV. Again, it is evangelism. We take the offensive under orders, praying and preaching the Holy Spirit. Our objective is people, individuals, cities, and nations. The enemy holds them captive at his own will. Then let us move out. Let us advance toward the objective, praying and preaching. Questions 1. Who is the enemy? Name him. 2. Who is the objective? Name him or them. 3. How should we pray for unbelievers? 4. How should we pray for believers?
5. Study the following. Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14, Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 18 through 20, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 19, chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, and Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 4. Look carefully at every phrase in the texts. What do the texts say about power? What do they say about wisdom? What do they say about speaking the gospel? What else do they say? 6. Make an agreement with each other to pray for one another with the content found in these biblical prayers and prayer requests. 7. Name other believers for whom you will pray. 8. Continue the discussion on preaching using 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 4 through chapter 2 verse 9. Go into this text in detail, noticing every positive characteristic about the proclamation of the gospel. Also list the ways the gospel is not to be preached. 9. Is there a decisive point in your city or state where you can concentrate prayer and witness? If you enjoyed this week's episode, check out the full audiobook now on the Canon app.